It won't come as a surprise to our regular listeners that this show often includes discussion of political opinions and beliefs. Please know that any such statements made by our hosts and guests are solely theirs and do not reflect, one way or the other, the positions of the Chicago Bar Association, which is a strictly nonpartisan organization. And with that, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me as co-host is the ever-incomparable Trish Rich of Holland and Knight. Hi, Trish. How are you doing today? I've been better. Yeah. Um, Well, before you go any further, I do want to let our audience know and congratulate you on being installed as the president of the Appellate Lawyers Association of Illinois. Congratulations, friend. Thank you very much. I'm king nerd for a year. It's an (laughs) honor. I mean, to be fair, you've been you've been gunning to be king nerd for a long time. So this is definitely a step in the right direction. It's important to have ambitions. <laughs> now, are you the youngest president ever? Is that right or no? I'm, I'm the second youngest. Thanks for rubbing it in. Oh, okay. Tim and beat me by a year. Let's move on. Oh, man. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So, Trish, you know, I, I suspect you'll agree with me when I say that the last few weeks have seen the U.S. Supreme Court hand down some of the most heated and controversial decisions in its modern history. Decades, in some cases centuries, of case law have been overturned on a range of issues from firearms regulation to separation between church and state, to climate change regulation, administrative law generally, and to the topic we're here to discuss today, abortion, and what was a woman's federally protected constitutional right to choose whether to carry a pregnancy to term. Joining us to discuss that topic is Michelle Wetzel, General Counsel of Planned Parenthood, Illinois. Before joining Planned Parenthood in 2019, Michelle had a long and impressive career in legal aid, serving as an attorney at Prairie State Legal Services and the Legal Assistance Foundation, then becoming CEO of Bonaventure House, a living facility for people with HIV AIDS and struggling with addiction and mental health issues. She then became General Counsel to Howard Brown Health, where she worked for seven years before becoming GC of Planned Parenthood, Illinois. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, let's start with Dobbs. And, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on the analysis underlying the decision um, because I know a lot of other great podcasts have done that. But I do want to get your impressions on a few points because, well, one, I think it'll help inform our audience. And two, it'll provide some framework for our larger discussion about the decision's consequences and what comes next. So if you don't mind, and this is the only reading I'll do the entire podcast, I promise, but I want to read to you what I see as the key provision from the decision just to kick off the conversation. And Justice Alito for the majority wrote this. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, citing Glucksburg, which is interesting. The right to abortion does not fall within this category. And then it goes on to say, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak. And the decision has had damaging consequences. 
and far from bringing about the national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Impressions? Well, obviously we think that Alito got it wrong and that SCOTUS is misguided on this. He talks in the opinion about deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, but he really cherry-picked history. He cherry-picked the history of abortion and didn't discuss at all that during the 18th and 19th centuries, abortion of early pregnancy was legal Hmm. and that it wasn't regulated until uh, they were worried about poison control, not about punishing women for having an abortion. But Hmm. none of that is in Alito's decision whatsoever. So I find it interesting that he wants to rely on deeply rooted history and then skips a whole bunch of history. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, a a few other problems, and I know, Trish, you want to weigh in on this, um, but his his approach to the 14th Amendment strikes me as questionable when it comes to abortion for a few more reasons, in addition to the ones that you said. First is when the 14th Amendment was passed shortly after the Civil War, I think it was 1868, women didn't have the right to vote. So when we're discussing what the law of the states was, and what it did and didn't allow regarding women's rights and women's autonomy, we're discussing laws passed exclusively by men that women had absolutely no impact or no input on, right? Exactly, exactly right. And, and he talks about later on in the decision about women having the power to vote now. And, but that wasn't true when the amendment was passed, as you just said. So, of course, it wasn't in there because it was all written by men and not taking into account women's needs. I mean, there are lots of things that aren't itemized in the Constitution, but we have found them to be protected under the right to privacy and due process. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into more of those rights as we go along here. Yeah. And it's also ahistorical, to your point, to look at, I think, tradition preceding the 14th Amendment in particular, because the 14th Amendment, along with the 13th and 15th Amendment, was all about breaking away from that pre-existing tradition, right? It was about protecting those whose rights were not originally enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, Now, in fairness, I know Congress was focused on ending slavery and its vestiges when passing those amendments, but it was subsequently expanded to include women, and I don't think that the court is going back on that proposition, at least. So I guess my point is a long way of saying that if you're going to be an originalist on the 14th Amendment, You're not doing a very good job if you're looking at the law before the 14th Amendment as opposed to the purpose of the 14th Amendment itself. Exactly right. I just have to, you know, this is a day, you know, interviewing you, Michelle, is something I've really been looking forward to. But one of the things I've had to do is get to the point in the last 10 days where I can talk about this without literally just like yelling at the sky. Um, And so we'll see how I do today. But one of the challenges that I have when I am thinking about this is the block of the court who have this fealty to originalism, which I think is just complete bullshit, first of all. The idea that that legal theory can now govern so many people in the United States, when if you had gone up to the vast majority of the founding fathers and said to them, you know, just pick one, right? 
do you think women should have the right to, you know, he's going to say, wait, 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 let me stop you right there. (laughs) I don't need to hear the rest of the question, right? And it's infuriating to me. Infuriating is the only word I can think of for it, that we have to have all of these people that did not have a seat at that table, who were not considered people, who were, um, you know, property or vestiges of their husbands or you know, that did not have a meaningful say in democracy. I mean, for women, we've barely had the right to vote for 100 years. And now we have to have people like Samuel Alito tell us that because we haven't had these rights long enough, they don't, they don't count and they're not, they don't belong in the Constitution. It just seems so backwards to me. And I've had like a really, really hard time reconciling the conversation uh, uh, about that as anything but pure hypocrisy. I mean, how convenient for him, right, that all of his rights are in the Constitution and so many of mine aren't. Right. And you you can't hear me nodding my head, but I'm nodding my head emphatically. And I agree with you. The last 10 days have been horrible. And instead of screaming, I've been crying. So um, it's hard to get through this conversation without being outraged and and without uh, feeling a uh, a huge range of emotions when, especially over the 4th of July, right? It's the 4th of July and we're supposed to be uh, celebrating our freedoms while ours are being systematically stripped away. It's just so hard to, to take as a woman in this country right now. So on that and kind of touching back on the historical aspect of it, it, it seems to me that when you look at that prehistory that you and Trish were just, pre-Roe history that you and Trish were just talking about, and you look at like those 19th century statutes that banned abortion, many of which are coming back into effect now automatically under trigger laws, you see that they relied on this openly unashamed, paternalistic, discriminatory, sexist thinking about women's place in society. You know, they existed to cook, to clean, to bear children. And we know today under basic constitutional equal protection jurisprudence that laws can't be based and those kind of outmoded stereotypes and notions. So do you think that with those laws coming back into effect, they're subject to attack because of their legislative history? That's a great question. I think there are going to be attacks on all sides, right? There's going to be attacks on those outmoded laws, and there's going to be attacks on these newfangled laws that are gonna be devised to try and enforce these trigger laws. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's gonna be interesting on both sides to see how we frame these legal questions. I think it's just gonna be litigation. You know, yeah. I think they, these questions are so novel because we all thought it was settled law. These questions are so novel and it's going to be activist prosecutors who are going to raise these attempts to enforcement. And there's some legislation that's being attempted to put, be put in place in uh, protected states, but I think it's going to come down to litigation. I think that's how these things are going to uh, shake out. I, I wonder if, and maybe I'm just trying to too desperately to look for um, silver linings here. Uh, Trish, you'll give me a nasty look if, if you think I am. <laughs> But, you know, RBG was famous for thinking that Roe was decided too early and 
not on the most solid of grounds, on substantive due process grounds. And it would have been under on much better footing had it been decided or it had been attacked and decided on equal protection grounds, right? And j- just for our audience, the argument there would essentially be that for women to be equal to men, they, like men, need to have autonomy over their bodies. And that would have been much harder to attack if it was decided on that grounds because the debate would have been about weighing the relative rights of pregnant women and um, the unborn, but or wouldn't be about weighing the relative rights of pregnant women ver- versus the unborn, but rather about controlling one's own body as a necessary predicate to equality. And that's a concept I think would be very hard for anyone to deny. On a state-by-state basis, can that debate be had now under states' equal protection clauses? Wow, uh, good question. I mean, of course, it could be. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking, would that happen nationally, right? Would, yeah. would we try that argument nationally when, of course, we thought we could be successful so that we we could have it decided under equal protection as RBG suggested? I think so many states are going to take so many different approaches mm. to this. I think it's going to be all over the map. But you you raise a very good um, possibility, and I don't see why it it wouldn't it wouldn't or couldn't be true. I do think it's naive, though, John, to say that that would be a harder thing for the the forced birth crowd, or as they like to call themselves, the pro life crowd. I think that that would be. I, I don't agree that it would be a harder thing for them to argue about. I think their argument there would be. Sorry, not sorry, pregnant people. You're just not equal, right? You're not equal because men don't carry babies. And so we can't treat you equally on this one issue. And we don't accept that argument. So I agree with a lot of the legal scholars who think the equal protection clause might have been a better place to ground Roe. But I don't think that moves the needle for the forced birth people. Okay. Okay. Let, let me look for another silver lining there. Um, <laughs> Good luck. Please. Yeah, please all right. do. <laughs> all right. I'll go back. I'll go back to RBG on this. All right. One of the, another one of the criticisms she had for Roe, which I think I mentioned about it being decided too early was that it took a lot of wind out of the sails of the women's rights movement because people just sort of took their foot off the pedal in pursuing those rights because they were now considered to be enshrined in the constitution. And she thought that the political momentum would have gotten us there eventually anyway, and that that would have been a more solid grounding, less subject to culture war, essentially, than the decision in Roe. Will this decision in Dobbs now reinvigorate the women's rights movement and start doing at the ballot box what perhaps we can't do in the federal courthouse? Well, that's the hope, right? I mean, I think she was right in her observation. And, you know, this was a systematic decades-long pursuit for the Republican right. This didn't happen overnight. And I think we were, I think we did fall asleep a little bit and took Roe for granted. And the Republican right was crafting this and crafting the composition of the Supreme Court over decades to make this happen. I hope it doesn't take us decades to undo this. 
I just think that's such a good point, Michelle, because I, you know, I do a lot of work in democratic activist communities. As you know, I sit on the board of Personal PAC, which is a nonpartisan PAC based in Illinois that works to get abortion rights activists into office. And I, I remember getting a fundraising call maybe about four or five or six years ago. So, so I, I, my main point is I, I'm pretty not super knowledgeable in this state in this in this area, but probably more knowledgeable than the average bear in this particular area. And I got a fundraising call like five or six years ago uh, of somebody telling me like, "Oh, the court's going to overturn Roe," and I was like, "Stop, stop, stop! The court is not going to overturn Roe. Like, I'll give you money, ACLU or whoever it was, but like this scare tactic is not." you know, not helpful for thoughtful people because we know that the court is not going to do this. And I had always based it on this belief that the Republicans needed Roe. They needed Roe to fundraise. They needed Roe to get their people at the polls. And I thought it was a paper tiger to them, that they weren't, they would never actually overturn Roe because they needed it to drive their base so much. And I feel sheepish that I was wrong about that. And I realize now that they have all these other things that they care about that like contraception and gay marriage and gay adoption and crossing state lines for commerce and healthcare and, and all guns. of these other things and guns. Right. I, I mean, as it turns out, I guess there's a lot of things that will get people to the polls to vote for the Mitch McConnell's of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and to John's point, now it's our turn. Now it's our turn to get the feminist movement riled up again and get people to the polls. That's the only thing that's going to save us here, in my view, is to get the people who are sitting on the sidelines. I mean, we just had our primaries, right? And the turnout was abysmal because nobody cares. And especially in the uh, younger demographics, the turnout was the worst. And it's folks who are so checked out or even have anti-government sentiment. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that they don't participate in the mm -hmm. governmental process of voting because they think it doesn't affect them or doesn't concern them. And I think connecting with those voters and getting them to the polls is, is our strategy, has to be our strategy. So to that end, we have two Supreme Court seats up in Illinois this year, right? Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Not knowledgeably, but I can try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one's a new district, right, that hasn't Correct. had um, a Supreme Court seat before. So I think it's uh, critical that those two seats be progressive judges. And I... <sighs> I hate even talking like this, like this, right? Because it's not supposed to be a political, it's supposed to be judicial, but here is our reality. And so it's incredibly important for people to come out and vote for, on those two Supreme Court seats in Illinois because the Reproductive Health Act could be at risk, could very, very, very well be at risk. It could be overturned as easily as Roe was overturned if we have the wrong folks sitting in the Illinois Supreme Court. And, and I guess for our listeners, I should say that right now, Illinois has a Democratic governor, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic nonpartisan Supreme Court filled with, that has four Democrats and three Republicans on it. And two of those seats are 
up this year, which could uh, conceivably flip the court. Although I, I do think it's also, in fairness, important to add that the Illinois Supreme Court is much less ideological and partisan than the U.S. Supreme Court. I, that could not be more true. I mean, <laughs> get that tattooed on your body somewhere, John. That could not be more true. <laughs> I do. That's where I practice. That's why I like it. <laughs> um, so let's take a, a quick break there, and we'll come back and talk about consequences. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Michelle, let's talk about the immediate and long-term consequences um, for women here in Illinois and throughout the nation, I suppose, as well. If you, It, it strikes me that if you look at a map, there's only a, a small handful of states between Appalachia and the Rocky Mountains where um, abortion is likely to remain legal post-Dobbs. Uh, Illinois being among them. And Illinois is entirely surrounded by, I think it's entirely surrounded by states where, uh, you know, either because of trigger laws, which we mentioned before, snapping the law back to pre-Roe, the pre-Roe status quo, or because of pending legislation, it's the only state where abortion is likely to remain legal. Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan, Trish, there you go. I'm mentioning Michigan in an episode. Thank you. Um, all likely to be illegal there. So what does that mean for women in Illinois? I, I obviously, they'll still have the right, but I imagine the fact that we're surrounded by states where women won't have that right is going to impact their their access to that right. So I can't say this strongly enough that our doors at Planned Parenthood of Illinois are open. People are confused because of all of everything they've heard about Roe. And I just want to make sure everyone knows that the doors of Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers in Illinois are open and that abortion is available. Now, to your point, John, <laughs> we're going to be inundated. We're going to be inundated with women coming to us from all the states you mentioned. We're anticipating 20 to 30,000 more women coming from out of state to Illinois to uh, seek an abortion. Can you, can you handle that kind of quantity? So what we're doing is ramping up in every way that we can. Yeah. Um, we, in the last few years, we've opened more health centers. We opened a health center in Waukegan, closer to the Wisconsin border. We opened a health center in Flossmoor, closer to the Indiana border. Um, there are um, other providers in Southern Illinois um, that are closer uh, to those states. And we are looking for more providers, more support staff. There are staff from other states who are looking to come to Illinois to help us. Mm -hmm. But we're looking for help from the, from the governor as well. One of the things we've been asking for is APNs or advanced practice nurses in their scope of practice are, it's currently unclear in Illinois law about whether they're allowed to provide procedural abortions. And we've asked this administration to clarify that so that that would expand the pool of folks who can provide abortion in Illinois. We're also asking for expedited licensing for out-of-state providers when they come to Illinois so that they don't have to wait a really long time for their Illinois license to be approved. And we're asking for, for funding because we're going to need funding to help us build our infrastructure, build, uh, pay for more providers, and 
strengthen our kind of strengthen our everything to uh, meet the demand. You're building a new facility in Carbondale too, right? I thought I read that somewhere recently. There's another provider from Tennessee, where I, I'm currently speaking to you from, um, called Choices that is okay. opening in Carbondale. And you also, in the last few years, opened one on the, uh, uh, is it in, where is on the Missouri border, right? On the Illinois side of the Missouri border. Where is that one? That's actually the, it's not the Planned Parenthood of Illinois affiliate. Okay. Interestingly, it's the Planned Parenthood that uh, I think they've just changed their name to uh, Great Rivers based in Missouri. And they built just across the border in Illinois to help serve Missouri patients. And they are taking enormous heat from Missouri and Missouri legislation. And um, they're going to, Missouri is absolutely going to try and prevent providers in Illinois from serving Missouri people who seek abortions. And I, I see that coming down the pipeline, which I also think is crazy because people leave their home state to be treated medically for all kinds of things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit over the weekend about a story that broke in the news about a 10-year-old girl in Ohio. Now, I know you're on vacation, but did you read this story? I did see this story, yes. Yeah. So for the people that didn't see it, there's a um, 10-year-old rape survivor in Ohio who was uh, became pregnant as a result of her rape. And her Ohio doctor uh, determined that she was six weeks and three days pregnant and thus could not treat her uh, in Ohio for an abortion. And they sent her to Indiana. Um, I actually spent the holiday weekend in Indiana. So this was a big story there because it first, I think, ran in the Indianapolis Star. And they were able to get her into Indiana to have the abortion. But Indiana is only a few weeks away from uh, what looks like banning such procedures as well. So it seems like uh, if you're in Ohio, you know, as far east as Ohio, as far south as Louisiana, Mississippi, um, you know, maybe as far west as, you know, Kansas, Wyoming, Illinois is going to become the only choice for you soon, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. And I, I read that story as well, and I was thinking about a poor little girl, and she would have had to come to Illinois, and we would have had to have taken care of her here. And it must be heartbreaking for those physicians in Ohio to have had to have turned away that 10-year-old girl, and that they couldn't do what they were trained as medical professionals to do. It's, the whole thing is just it's crazy. And she she would have had to have the resources to travel across multiple states, um, which many women will not have that ability, right? To leave their jobs, to afford the hotel, possible flights, that kind of thing. And that's going to affect, as we know, will affect the poor and women of color the most. Right. This is just one more way that people of color will be disenfranchised again, more. What, what What's this going to do for, well, Planned Parenthood, I, I know Planned Parenthood does a lot of really important work, like just standard reproductive work for women, pap smears, everything, particularly for under underprivileged women. Will 
Planned Parenthood still be operating in these other states? Like, what what's the strategic plan to keep offering those uh, services in the other states, or to consolidate in the states where abortion is still legal to build out those services that you were talking about before to ensure that women coming to states like Illinois can have access to all that? What, what what's the what's the strategic outlook? It'll probably be a state by state, affiliate affiliate um, okay. analysis. Um, based on how they can keep their doors open. But of course, the goal would be to be able to still provide all the reproductive health care and uh, gender-affirming health care services, um, contraceptive services in those states that can't provide abortion, that those other services would still be available to the women in those states. In fact, we will probably look to those nearby states to help us do those services for our patients. Oh, I see. So that we're freed up to do the abortions that only we'll be able to do. Okay. So uh, I'm glad that you, you brought up contraceptive services because, you know, Justice Thomas in his concurring opinion in Dobbs put Griswold v. Connecticut, the 1965 decision declaring married couples had a right to contraceptions squarely in the crosshairs saying, you know, we're attacking substantive due process as a right here. So that means Griswold comes into question. That means Lawrence v. Texas, the decision invalidating sodomy laws and making same-sex activity legal into question. Obergefell, obviously, the 2015 case establishing same-sex right to marriage. He said those are all up for debate now because we're undermining substantive due process. Now, I, I know Alito and Kavanaugh said, no, 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 abortion's different. We're not going there, but the court, and to be fair, the right and left side of the court have had a long history of making those kinds of promises and then breaking them as soon as possible. So where do you see that happening? Do you see, I mean, Griswold v. Connecticut, that's so foundational. <laughs> you, you, you're party of small government, right? I want to be uh, <laughs> in your bedroom and tell you what to do. Yeah. I, Gr- Griswold and... Obergefell, do you, do you see that happening? Well, I think Griswold is more problematic than the others. I think that <laughs> I, I think everybody uses contraception. I, I mean, I, I think that one's going to be harder for them to take away. But I think that Lawrence and Obergefell are definitely, definitely at risk. And being a member of the LGBT community, I'm terrified of that. And I think that we need to, you know, we've been so uh, happy about gaining those rights, and they're fairly recent, that we haven't thought about, oh, my God, what if that was taken away? So we don't want to make the same mistake that we made with Roe and think that they're safe. I think we'll have to mobilize to try and protect those as well. But unless it's, I don't know, unless it's codified, it's a risk. It's it's at risk in the exact same way. And and wasn't it interesting that that Clarence Thomas didn't mention loving, which affects him personally? Well, Uh, yeah, I think that that, I think that was an equal protection case. Um, Yeah, that would be his argument. But again, isn't it so convenient? Um, Mr. Alito and Mr. Thomas's, you know, interests are just protected in a way that ours aren't. Yeah. But I mean, you you both see the argument coming. Alito said, Alito based this decision on the idea that none of 
the the right to abortion isn't deeply rooted in our history and tradition. And he could certainly say the same thing about Obergefell at the very least. Now, I think that would be a bit of a harder lift because a big part of the Dobbs decision and his, you know, his argument that it was okay to undermine the concept of, or that he wasn't undermining the concept of stare decisis because there wasn't much reliance on the right to abortion because it's, you know, a purely future activity. Obviously, uh, same-sex couples that have gotten married since Obergefell uh, was handed down, that, that argument cannot be made. The reliance interest is huge and fundamental, so that might be a harder lift. But, you know... The court, the court thing, said that before. Yeah, one thing I want to say about Casey, John, is just for the people that are listening that don't know, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the fall of Roe, but Casey is also really interesting because Casey, one of the laws that was um, invalidated there was the fact that if you were a pregnant person seeking an abortion, you had to tell your husband. And that is how the law is written, written in, in Casey that was struck down. It was, if you're a pregnant woman, you have to tell your husband. But, uh, you know, that's back on the table. Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, uh, certainly throughout Lolito's decision, he talks about Roe and Casey as essentially one body of jurisprudence. All right. <laughs> Let's take a break and come I back know. to Stranger in Legal <laughs> Fiction because this is getting depressing quick. We'll be right back. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.com. .chicagobar.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And we're back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction, which will hopefully be a slightly uplifting way to end this conversation today. Our audience knows the rules. They're pretty simple. Trish and I have done a little research. Uh, we found one law that is real. We've made another one up. We're going to quiz each other and Michelle to see who can distinguish strange fact from fiction. Michelle, are you ready? Ready as I'm going to be. Trish, are you ready? Yeah, and I think I should go first today because I did not, uh, I, I, if, if we have any chance of ending on an uplifting note, it's it's with you. Oh, great. Okay. All right. <laughs> After you then. Okay. Um, okay. So here are the two laws I, I selected for today. Uh, in Jordan, a woman must obtain her husband's permission to get a job outside of the home. Or in Malta, a testimony from a man in a legal proceeding is uh, by law weighted more heavily than testimony from women. Oh, that's a good one. Fun, right? Michelle, what do you think? Which one's real? Uh, I think the Jordan one is real. Why? Oh, uh, 
because I don't know anything about Malta. (laughs) (laughs) John, what do you think? I'm trying to remember if Malta is in the European Union, which I think matters because we we know that the European Union has certain basic human rights standards. And I know Malta was founded by stray wandering crusaders who probably had somewhat, let's say, not modern views of the relations between men and women. This is why John's a nerd, Michelle. Go ahead, John. Um, he knows clearly way more about Malta than I do. I do not think Malta's in the EU, so I'm going to say the Jordan option is real. You are both correct. And that was a surprise to me because I have a client in Jordan, and uh, I've been there, and I, I think of it as being a more Western area uh, for that part of the world. And, and that is correct. In Jordan, a woman must obtain her husband's permission to get a job outside of the home. That is true in 18 countries, uh, Beiran, Bolivia, Cameroon, Chad, Congo, Gabon, uh, Guyana, Iran, Jordan, Kuwait, Mauritania, Niger, Qatar, Sudan, Syria, UAE, West Bank and Gaza, and Yemen. The Malta law is not true in Malta, but it is true in 16 other countries, which I won't name. But I thought, as I said, uh, (laughs) not exactly uplifting. It's not going to be, it's not a funny one today, but in spirit of, uh, you know, women's rights being attacked in other places, I thought I would uh, keep with the theme. So, John, I I hope you have... (laughs) Something wow. uplifting. That, that, that's a, I know, that's a heck I'm of sorry. a spirit to be. Okay, okay. I'm going to go in the opposite direction here. Okay, it's not as bad as your uh, Chinese people running people over law from a few weeks ago, so. I was addressing a major social issue, okay? <laughs> All right, go option ahead. number one. Option number one. <laughs> in Quitman, Georgia, you never need to ask why a chicken crossed the road because allowing it to do so in the first place is per se illegal. That's option number one. Option number two, in appropriately named Salmon, Idaho, it is illegal to poach salmon when preparing it for commercial purposes for groups of 20 or more persons, but pan frying, roasting, pan searing, broiling, and or baking is permissible for the same purpose and the same group size. So chickens crossing the road or poaching salmon. Michelle, which one's real? I'm going with chickens crossing the road. Why? Because chickens don't have the same protection as other fowl in Georgia. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Trish, what do you think? Under our our time-tested rule of the crazier it is, the more likely it is to be real. I think it's probably the salmon law. But I also think of salmon as being something that's just regulated a little bit more heavily. So I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to choose the Idaho law. And Michelle, you win. Oh good. <laughs> I love chapter, it when the guest wins. <laughs> chapter 8, Article 1, Section 8-1 of the Municipal Code of Quitman, Georgia makes it quote unlawful for any purpose owning or controlling chickens, ducks, geese or any other domestic fowl to allow the same to run at large upon the streets or alley of the city. So Michelle, chickens do have the same rights as other fowl in Georgia, <laughs> which is none. <laughs> I, I mean, had the wrong legal reasoning, but I had the right results. So uh, I don't know. Hey, if a win's a win. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, before we sign off, I just want to thank you for, you know, all that you're doing for the people of the state of Illinois. Uh, it's been a real pleasure for us to have you on here. And I, you know, you're a hero of ours. And 
mine at least. I'm not going to speak for John, but thank you for everything that you guys are doing in Planned Parenthood. I, you know, I know you have some tough days ahead, but I hope there is at some point a, a light at the end of that tunnel. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, we're, we're doing the best we can, and we're going to need everybody's support to help us get through this and to help the women who are coming to us for care. I'll just reiterate that, as you said earlier, like, please, for the love of God, go vote, right? Everybody just go vote. John, take us home. I was just going to say, I want to echo those thanks, Michelle. I also want to thank my co-host, Trish Rich, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us, send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. Thank you.